Good morning. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Today we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 11. Joe and the worship team, thank you for leading us so well in corporate worship today. I hope your hearts are tuned to the Word of God as we continue this study, this exposition of Hebrews. Oh, this has been so fruitful. I think this has been such a good study. I hope it has for you. We're not at the end yet. We've got a lot more ground to cover, really, in the next two chapters. A lot of, a lot of good stuff in here, a lot of edifying stuff. But I hope it's been as good for you as it has for me to study and prepare to preach. So let us hear now the Word of God as inspired by a Spirit, Hebrews 12, beginning verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. When the Lord disciplines, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of the spirits and live? Now they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will endure forever. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for this privilege of considering your word, Lord, and having your word consider us, for it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword able to discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Lord, it is your x-ray machine. It is that which shows us what's in our hearts and what needs to change in God. So we pray that you'd work in us today by the power of your Spirit to transform us, as Paul so well puts it, from one level of glory to another. Give us grace to desire to live our lives, Lord, to glorify you and honor you and praise you in every, in every area, God. And be those here today who do not know you. I pray today will be the day when you draw them, convict them of sin. Lord, help them to see the, the certainty of your wrath they face in a godless eternity apart from Christ. And I pray that they would flee to you today. You would draw them to yourself. You grant them repentance. Grant them faith. Make their hearts willing to believe, God, in this glorious gospel, the glorious love you have for sinners, the glorious rescue mission you've set forth in your word. And Father, I pray you'd warm our hearts today. We might love it and delight in it and delight in your glory and make us holy even as you are holy. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. When I was growing up on the farm, we had this big old apple tree. Actually, it was kind of a fat apple tree. Apple trees don't grow tall. They grow kind of fat. This apple tree sat in our backyard, and I'll never, I can remember to this moment exactly what this tree looked like. It finally actually got it got old, it died, or something got disease, got in its roots, and we cut it down, and I was glad. And I have nothing against apples. I love apples. But here's why I didn't like that apple tree. I remember one Sunday, 
or actually wasn't, I think it was a Sunday, it was during a revival meeting down in Georgia. And uh, I got home from church, and my father was very unhappy with me. Now, I wasn't sure why he was so unhappy with me, but he showed his displeasure and told me that I had been cutting up in church. I had uh, distracted a lot of people during the, the preaching of the Word. I think I was about 10 years old. I'd been distracting people with all my hyperactivity and talk. Well, I don't know what I've been doing, but it wasn't good. And so he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out to the apple tree and cut a switch. Now, if you don't know what a switch is, ask your parents. He said, I want you to cut a switch. He told me he prescribed the approximate length of this switch, what it needed to be, what I needed to do. I needed to bring it back to him. Of course, I knew exactly what this meant. This meant I was going to be disciplined for my misbehavior. And my dad, who was a good father, wonderful father, not an abusive father, and if you think that's abuse, well, we'll talk about that later. You need to take it up with the writer of Proverbs, as we'll see a little bit later. My dad disciplined me. And I remember that spanking to this very day because I remember the switch. He called it a switching, which is a good way, another way, of sort of a southern way of saying a spanking. And so every time that happened, I had to go to that apple tree. That's why I grew to hate that apple tree. And I associate that apple tree. It's probably why I don't like apples all that much a day. I associate that with being disciplined. But my dad disciplined me, again, but not because he was some kind of angry, out-of-control father with anger issues. Who do, and I know there are fathers like that. I know maybe some of you have been raised by fathers or no fathers like that. But by God's grace, my dad wasn't like that. But he loved me, and he disciplined me. And we cut down the apple tree, and we actually moved away from the farm about that time, so I didn't get out quite in time. But I'm very thankful for that. We come to a text today that's really, really kind of validates what my father did. Why does it validate that? We think that's abusive and mean-spirited. Well, it's because this is what God does for us out of his love for us. God, as we learn here, as we learn in other places in Scripture, and we either take all the Bible or don't take it at all, right, that he disciplines every son whom he loves. Alexander McLaren, a great British preacher, lived in the 19th century, compared Hebrews 12, 3 to 13 to a lighthouse. He said it gives the kind of teaching that we don't really notice when the sun is shining. In other words, when everything's going well in our life, we don't go here. So it kind of becomes an obscure text to us. But like light from a lighthouse, it doesn't stand out very well in the daytime. But when night comes and the storm begins to blast against us, when the darkness comes into our lives, he says, it suddenly blazes with a light that is essential. Don't miss that word, essential if we're going to find our way. These verses are like that because they speak of divine discipline, and that is the biblical teaching that God chastises and trains his children by means of difficulties and hardships in life. Those things are actually for our good, for our good. You may be there right now. You may be, if you're not, you will be. You may be suffering affliction right now. You don't understand, and you wonder, what's God up to? Well, we're going to learn he's up to something for sure. And you may not know, maybe even in this life you'll never know, but he is up to something. Now this is a topic we hardly care about when God does not seem to be doing it, but when chastisement falls, when affliction falls, Christians greatly need the encouragement and comfort and instruction found here. Now one thing we, I think, grossly lack, and we've seen this in the past year, sadly, in our churches today, is what I like to call spiritual grittiness. Spiritual grittiness. We lack that in the evangelical church today. And that's true of me. Uh, it's not just you. It's me. Where I'm not gritty far enough spiritually. 
I don't mean I'm a tough guy. I'm definitely not a tough guy. But I mean gritty spiritually. That's what we're being called to, I think, here. We don't suffer well because we don't understand what it takes for us to be transformed into the image of Christ. We don't understand what God is up to. That actually he's treating us as sons, that he loves us, and because he loves us, he allows this into our lives, or he ordains these things for us. Whichever way, two sides of the same coin. Even Calvin phrased it that way, man, who certainly would never be accused of undermining the sovereignty of God. God just loves us too much and paid too high a cost for our salvation to merely leave us where we are. God wants you to be like his son Jesus. And his discipline, suffering, is a, I would argue, on the authority of Scripture, is a major part of that. Our God doesn't waste a thing. You can think back over your lives and say, I know it's true with me. God doesn't waste anything at all, ever, ever, ever. Of course, the context of the whole book of Hebrews is important. We say this every week, but it's addressed to Jewish converts who are experiencing persecution for their faith. And so much so, they're being attempted to just ditch Christianity and say, well, it's just too hard. I'm going to go back to Judaism. I can check boxes and I can, you know, I can get my, you know, my name written on the board, a smiley face by my name. You know, like I used to clean up your plate in first grade. I can get that in Judaism and I'll know I'm all right with God because I've done my work. But we know, the writer of Hebrews knows that salvation is what? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not by works. And so he's saying persevere. This whole book is a letter of perseverance. And what better letter to study, what better, what better doctrines to study coming out of a pandemic, if it is that, than this, right? We talk about all we've been through, all we've been through. Well, God is, God is bringing us through it. I think we're, you know, we're, we're closer to the end of it, aren't we? And praise God for that. But I want us as a church to develop a spiritual grittiness. And I think this church, we... We have that. I'm very thankful for that. But I, in broader evangelical circles, I don't see that quite as much. J.C. Ryle said this, and all of Dr. Ryle, good old bishop from around Spurgeon's time in England, said, By affliction, God teaches us many precious lessons, which without, without which we should never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and our weakness. He shows us, he draws us to the throne of grace. We run to him, in other words. He purifies our affections. We set our hearts, our affections on him because this world is not worth it. I hope you see that. If you hadn't seen that in the last year, I hope you see it now. He weans us from the world, makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning, we shall say, it is good for me that I was afflicted. On that great getting up day, when you rise from the dead, you're going to say that it was good that I was afflicted. Because it was good that Jesus was afflicted. We're going to get to the cross, of course. Always, always, always. It is good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm. I think the purpose of this admonition is in, in verse 3, second part of verse 3 here. said, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. My way of saying that is you will be spiritually gritty. That when the storms blow into your life, you're able to stand by God's grace. Of course, you can't stand, but God's grace will make you to stand. And these, these afflictions, the, the purpose of them is to make you stand so that you're accustomed to the storm, right? You may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is a call to perseverance. The whole book is a call, beloved, to perseverance. Because here's what he's wanting us to do. We are interpreters, do you know that? You're an interpreter. I'm an interpreter of Scripture, but I'm also an interpreter of life. In fact, I'm an interpreter more than anything of my own life. You're always interpreting things. What does this mean for my life? What is life all about? What's, 
What's God up to? Or why, you know, why did he break up with me? Or why did I lose this job? What's the meaning behind this? You're always looking for the meaning of life. You're always looking for the meaning, the why question. The answer to that question behind everything. So you are an, an interpreter. Most fundamentally, I would argue. And so am I, right? And so what the author here is doing is helping us to interpret God's activities in our lives that we may not see as, as, as much, we might take as with much joy. He's talking about us to rightly interpret these things. So the Bible, Scripture, we interpret Scripture, but it interprets us. and interprets life for us, doesn't it? That's why we need the Bible every single day. We need God's interpretation of life, of our lives, what he's up to. And this, this is incredibly, uh, this incredibly profound, I think. How do I interpret my suffering? Because we're all interpreters. Well, he starts here. He starts with Christ. Uh, he's just come through verses 12, 1 and 2, about speaking of the great cloud of witnesses back in chapter 11. He said, let us lay aside, we'll look at this last week, every weight and the sin that clings so easily to us and run the race that God has providentially and sovereignly set before us by doing what? By pulling up our bootstraps? By getting tough, getting gritty? I'm not saying get gritty. I'm saying get God's grace because God's grace is going to make you gritty, Right? By doing what? Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This isn't just some kind of bare legalism. It'll just, I want you to do better. I seldom tell my kids, do better. I say, pray for God's grace to do better. Telling you to do better, that's not going to really cause you to do better, is it? We need God's grace. We don't have the, the engine to keep the law due. That is what the gospel does for us. So they're looking to Jesus. And what he says here in verses 3 and 4, and my first main point is, your suffering, yes, your suffering's bad, but it will never be worse than Christ's. It will never be worse than that which he experienced at the cross, at Calvary. He says, consider Jesus. That's where he starts, and that's where we always start, isn't it? We always start with Jesus, we end with Jesus. You know, I love to say that when my kids were young, I would say, what did I preach on today? And they'd always say, Jesus, and sometimes sin. Because <laughs> they knew that's the good Baptist Sunday school answer, right? It's either Jesus or sin, and usually together the same thing. Because their dad's repetitive, he preaches the same thing, because that's what the Bible's about, right? Consider Jesus. Consider him who experienced such awful, grinding suffering. And be strengthened that you don't grow weary or faint hearted. That's what he's saying. In other words, Jesus endured the cross so that you might look to him and endure suffering as a believer in this fallen world. So he was your forerunner. We learned this last week. He blazed the trail before you so that you could endure. He endured the cross, despising the shame that came to the cross, bearing our shame so that you might endure. If you persevere all the way till the end, it will only be by his grace. In fact, you won't fall away because of his grace. You're believing right now because of his grace. I would argue if you're listening to this sermon right now, it's because of his grace. You might argue something different with me, but no, you're in church, you're listening to God's word, you've been singing God's word, been praying to the sovereign Lord of glory because of his grace, because of Christ. Consider Jesus. He endured so you can endure. Our Christian growth moves forward first and foremost as we keep on looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So really this morning... Like every Lord's Day morning, I really want you to look to Jesus. I don't want you to look to me. I want you to look to Jesus. I said to Spurgeon that someone visited in late 19th century England and heard a great, uh, one of the famous preachers in London on Sunday morning. They went to Metropolitan Tabernacle on Sunday and I heard the great Spurgeon preach. And they left that first church saying, wow, what a great preacher. 
and they left Spurgeon's, Spurgeon's Tabernacle on Sunday night saying, wow, what a great Savior. That's what I want you to see here, right? Every Sunday, it's never, wow, what a great preacher. If you think that, don't tell me that. It'll give me, you know, the big head or something like that, or I'll think you're, you're being sarcastic because there's a lot of you out there like that. And that's for my good. That's why I love it. One of the things I love about you so much. But no, I want you to keep on looking to Jesus. That's really what we're here for, right? To keep your eyes focused not on Christ Fellowship Baptist Church or Southern Baptists or the Southern Baptist Seminary or uh, whatever it is. Christ. That's how you'll endure suffering, through Jesus who endured for you. And he says, you haven't shed your blood yet to the degree he did here in verse 4. Yes, you've known persecution. Yes, you're, the government hates you. The government wants to stamp out Christianity. It wants to erase any, uh, just eradicate any, any vestige of Christianity. And it wants to kill you in the process and silence your voice. But you've still not suffered anything near as serious as what Jesus suffered. That's what he's saying. Is, you're suffering? Ha! Huh. Ha! Huh. I have to go back to this when I complain. We like to grumble, right? The, the children of Israel, Meribah, man, they grumbled. And what did God do? Boy, he didn't take that well. Which tells me God doesn't take our grumbling particularly well either. And yet I'm an inveterate grumbler. You grumble? Uh, grumblers, I could get you a show of hands and I'd say you're lying if you didn't raise your hand. We grumble about things, don't we? We, we? we suffer and we think, boy, I wish I had his life or her life. Because it's much better than my life. We live this if-only lifestyle that I've talked about so much here. But you look to Jesus and say, it doesn't matter. You've not suffered to the point of shedding your blood. No, no, no. Even in your war against sin, I think there's almost like, even in your war against sin, still you've not gone far enough. There's still sin in your life, right? You've not shed your blood for your sin. Jesus, of course, covered your sin with his blood. You've not yet, you've not yet struggled that much, he says. I mean, Jesus was the sufferer par excellence. We will never suffer like he did. And what makes his suffering so scandalous is the fact that he was innocent. It was the just dying for the unjust. That's the Easter story, right? That's what we celebrated last week. And we celebrate every Sunday here at Christ Fellowship Church. You're suffering whenever you worship in Christ. Secondly, verse, that's verses 3 and 4. Verses 5 to first part of verse 10. God uses your suffering to do what? He doesn't waste it. He uses it to show that you are a son or a daughter. Show your sonship. That's what he's doing. He's showing that you are one of his children. It In many ways, it validates your conversion to Christ. God has adopted you into his family. And discipline, what is that but a badge of sonship? You're suffering for your faith, badge of sonship. God disciplining you to make you more like Jesus, badge of your sonship. Or your daughtership. You belong to him. He's adopted you into his family. Remember, we, I love to say this. You may come from a, a family that's a mess. It's a hot mess. Well, guess what? So did I. And so have all of us. We're just honest about that. You know, we like to talk about our families. But, I mean, at the end of the day, they're all dysfunctional, right, because we live in a fallen world. You've been adopted by a perfect God into a family that is being made perfect and will be perfect one day, right? And the badge of that sonship is your suffering. A loving father only disciplines children who are his own. And maybe you're out being taken out behind God's woodshed now. Again, that's an old school phrase for getting a spanking. You go out by the, behind the woodshed, cut a hickory switch, as they call it. It wasn't a hickory, it's an apple tree switch. And I think I got my spanking in the house. I don't remember if there was a woodshed, but 
Phew, I'd like to have gone there if it would have delayed it probably, but you take him up behind the woodshed. Well, that's what God does. He takes you behind his woodshed, but to make you more like his son. Not because he's some kind of angry, bloodthirsty deity. That's not true. That's not the biblical God. But there's a problem. There's two things, and they, they're, they're intimately related. One, these, these saints have misinterpreted their suffering, and you often do as well. That's the, that's the focus here. We're, we're interpreters, and we misinterpret our suffering. Like we misinterpret a lot of things. You know, we have, make assumptions. You know, we, make assu- we encourage you, the Bible encourages us not to assume things about other believers unless you, I mean, did you know, don't know whether it's true or not. Well, that's what we do. We assume things about God. We misinterpret our suffering. And this, this audience had done that. They were thinking, well, if God loves us so much, then why am I suffering? Why does he spank me? Why does he take me behind the woodshed? Why does he allow this into my life? Why don't I have more money? Why do I struggle to pay the rent? Why don't I get to go on vacation like other people do? Why don't I have a new car? Why, I mean, we think about these things, don't we? Why do I have cancer? Why did my child die? Why did my, why did my father die? God must really be mad at me. I must have done something wrong. You see, and we, we become anxious, and so we, we misinterpret these things, and we misunderstand God. Why are we suffering? Well, we all want to know the answer, don't we? I mean, how many times do we think this way in a church today? We lack this spiritual grittiness, and we lack it precisely because of the second problem that, that the author's audience is facing. It's they are suffering from spiritual amnesia. They, they, they've asked the question. They've misinterpreted the suffering because they've forgotten who they are. They've forgotten who their identity. They've, they have, they're suffering from what uh, Paul Tripp calls identity amnesia or spiritual amnesia. They're not remembering the scripture and why it tells you uh, what it tells us about their our suffering, why we suffer. And it tells us who we are in Christ. It seems they've forgotten that. And how often do we forget that? Who we are and why we're suffering and what God's word has to say about this suffering. We only begin to misunderstand suffering and the ways of God when we lose touch with the Scriptures. As a pastor, I've had people for years ask me, why is God doing this? Or say even things to me like this, I will never serve a God who allows my son to die. You will never serve the God of the Bible. It means you will contrive, you will fabricate a God of your own image, a God of your own making. It's not the God of the Bible, though. But his God is good and holy and righteous and just. We'll look at this more next week as we get into why we're called to be holy. Because of his holiness. But we misinterpret this. We, we lose touch with scripture and what it says about suffering. It's as if the author here in verse 5 and following says, You wouldn't have gotten into this sorry state if you just read your Bibles first. I don't know how many times I've counseled people that way. You know, you're just not reading your Bible. You don't even have to come to me. Just read your, the, the word. And it's right there. Why? Well, read the Bible. God is just treating you as a son or a daughter. God is treating you as someone you love. You're, you're a son or a daughter. You're in Christ, and God is treating you as a son or a daughter whom he loves. We misunderstand, but Scripture tells us that, right? I mean, how much anxiousness and depression might we avoid if we actually read and meditated on and memorized God's Word daily? They say, well, I don't have time. Well, you need to make time. 
I need to make time. It was a struggle for a long time for me, but by God's grace, I've seen the benefit. How many things God explains about himself and about me and about my world, about how many of the why questions come, come to fruition and get answers because Scripture tells us. And we don't do this as preachers and pastors just so we can have you tell us, hey, I read the Bible through this year, and aren't you proud of me? I don't want you to tell me that. I tell you that every December, don't I? Read through your Bible this year. We give you a bunch of plans, but you don't have to, like, tell us. Because then that'll just be, you'll be motivated by, you know, the applause of men or something like that. But no, we want you to be in the Word because it will transform you. It will inform you, and it will transform you. That's why Baptists were a people of the book. I mean, go back over your own experience. Those times you got in trouble, you usually find it's because you've forgotten your Bible somewhere along the line. You failed to know and apply the relevant teaching to your circumstances. That's why I hear people say all the time, man, I just love the teaching. Yeah, it's really simple. And the inevitable result is a false reading of your situation and the discouragement that always follows. No wonder we're discouraged. No wonder we lack that grittiness. The Bible's a gritty book. That's why I use that word. I mean, look at the Old Testament. Man, look what Israel went through. Wow. Were they ever stupid? One and two, we are we ever stupid, right? And three, is God ever faithful? And is he ever going to put us through things for our good? And we see that. Martin Lowe Jones said, A most prolific cause of the condition of spiritual depression is the failure to realize that God uses varied methods in the process of our sanctification. And we only know this through his word. How do we know the church is so important? How do we know church attendance is so important? Because the Bible tells me so. The little, it's the children's song you learned in vacation Bible school. How do we know? Well, the Bible tells me so. That's really it. That's good theology, by the way. And that's pretty easy to understand. You don't need Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, and those are great things, but you don't need that to understand that, do you? And I don't either. It's very, very simple. We lose touch of Scripture. And here in this, this audience, precisely the opposite of what they think is happening is true. And they would only know if they had been in touch with God's Word and His truth, his, his mind and His heart on everything that we need to know. So we read in, in, in Scripture the good news about suffering. He says, you have to endure, verse 7, because of what? Discipline. And discipline, rather than being some kind of punishment, is a sign that you are a genuine son or daughter of God. But this is counterintuitive to our fallen minds, isn't it? We don't think this way. We think of God, we want to think of him as some kind of like celestial bellhop of this loving grandfather whose job it is to forgive us and to kind of cater after us and to give us all of our worldly pleasures, everything we want, like a spoiled child. So we misinterpret things. But the Bible gives good news about suffering. We tend to think sentimentally about the love of God, don't we? He loves us, he'll lavish things on us, spoil us, give us a life of ease and merriment. In the midst of suffering, when we've prayed and prayed and prayed that God will change our circumstances, that he will take the thorn away, take it out of our flesh, we tend to think he's abandoned us or that the promises of the gospel must not be true. We doubt God's goodness or even his sovereignty. I had another very high-profile deconversion story this week. And a Desiring God writer is now no longer a Christian. He said because he wanted to be happy again and be able to tell people good things. I would argue he lacked spiritual grittiness. He just doesn't believe the Bible. And he's living in a fantasy world. You don't want to tell me you want to go out there in this world without God and think it's going to be joyful and happy. It's going to go well for you. Brothers and sisters, that is Disneyland. 
That is a fantasy world that does not exist. I would not want to wake up one day in this world without Jesus Christ as my Savior and this Word of God as my food and my drink. Not one day. No wonder we're depressed in the church. No wonder we're filled with anxiety. Of course, I, I can have these things too. It's not, I'm not saying, well, I'm just spiritually tough and you need to be like me. No, no, no. This is for me. I like this too. I like this same grittiness because I'm a spoiled Westerner myself. These are my struggles. I know, and that's how I know they're your struggles. They're common to all of us, aren't they? We need to know that, that suffering in Scripture is good news. I think we have this entitlement mentality. We get that from our culture, in which we're always the victim, right? Always the victim. Everybody's a victim. You notice that lately? Everybody's a victim. You're a victim of, I mean, everything. If they run out of, like, Twinkies, you're a victim of Twinkies running out. I mean, it's just spiritual grittiness. Oh, how we need it in the church. A lot of victims in the church, the whole victimology. Our government's running about on victimology now. It's pathetic and awful, and I hope you see through it. Don't buy into it. The only, the greatest victim in the history of the world was Jesus Christ. He was truly a victim because he was truly innocent. And he laid down his life. He was murdered for your sake. That's the victim. You want a victimology? Beloved, that's it. Let's get out of this sniveling, whining kind of victimology. It's ruining our culture. But forget the culture. It's ruining the church. Suffering is good news. We're not entitled to anything. What if we got what God owes us? What would we get? His wrath. God owes us nothing. He doesn't owe me the last breath I breathe, the word I just spoke. He owes me nothing. And yet he gives me everything. I'm a son adopted into his family. I don't get what I deserve. Because you see, as I've said before, I mean, mercy cannot be demanded. And when you demand justice, fairness, mercy cannot be demanded. And he's given me mercy and not justice. Because if I got justice, I'd be in hell right this very moment. And so would you. If it got what we deserved. But we approach, we approach suffering this way, don't we? He says, you're a son, and I love you. You're not a victim. You're a son. And because you're a son, I love you too much to leave you where you are. And of course, you're going to be disciplined. You discipline your children, fathers. You love them. You don't discipline because you're just trying to be mean, I hope. Better not be. You discipline them because you love them. Now, I know we've had, a, some have had abusive fathers. I'm speaking of, we're trying to live in accord with Scripture here. Those kind of fathers. If that's not you, then read the Bible. That's what discipline's for. It's a good thing. He says, you're a son, verses 5 to 7. Of course you're going to be disciplined. He's asking them to remember the teaching they should know so well from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. They know the Old Testament. He's interpreting the Old Testament here again for us. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't just dismiss it. Don't just play the victim. Nor be weary when reproved by him. Don't be weary. Don't fall away. He wants us to be gritty. Gritty grace. <laughs> the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves. There it is. And chastises every son whom he receives. No exceptions. My parents disciplined me and my brothers, and boy, we needed it. I can assure you. I'm thankful they did today. And I got a good picture. And again, I know that my, my situation was very, I had very good parents. I'm so thankful for them. Some of you told me, man, I hear you talk about that, and I'm, I didn't have that experience. And I'm sorry. I know, I know unfortunately, it's probably the more, the more the exception than the rule. 
But I think it was because they loved me, and I see the benefit today. And it showed that they love me, and it does when God disciplines us. But we're suffering from spiritual amnesia. He says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? That's where I get the amnesia. Have you forgotten that you're a son? Scripture, if you read it, addresses you as sons. Beloved sons, beloved daughters. Of course, we're, uh, encompasses both of us. Both genders, of course. Your son, of course, you'll be disciplined. Do not take it lightly. Lord disciplines the one whom he loves. That's it. And chastises every son whom he receives. So suffering for the Christian is never wasted. No matter how prolonged it may seem to you, no matter how weary you may be, he's saying persevere by grace because God loves you enough to discipline you. John Calvin said, The scourges of God bear witness of his love toward us. Verse 6 says, Lord disciplines the one he loves. It's amazing how a loving father treats his sons. Do I believe corporal? I said capital once in preaching on this. Do I believe capital punishment for children is biblical? <laughs> okay, I said corporal. Okay, I didn't say capital. You're saying, no, you don't know my kids. <laughs> you might advocate for capital punishment at least in certain days. Do I believe it's biblical? Absolutely. Do I believe fathers are abdicated when they won't do this? Absolutely. What does that look like? Well, I think it looks like what the writer of Proverbs says. Either this is God's word or it's not. I know in this culture that makes us squeamish. I think what my dad did, what the apple tree did for me, those little, those little switches, I think those were good. That was a good, those were good things. I know the culture, again, the victim culture, man, that, oh, you were a victim. Jeff, what's, what, your dad was a, he was a tyrant. No, my dad was a Christian. Look at how scripture calls earthly fathers to lovingly discipline their sons. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. I didn't write this. The Spirit of God wrote this through Solomon. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline. I think I put these up here. Proverbs 22, 15. Fooly, folly, sorry, foolishness. <laughs> I learned this. No King James is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Are your children foolish? Were you foolish as a child? You better believe it. I'm still foolish sometimes now as a grown man, all right? And so are you, and grown women. It's bound up in the heart of a child. How will they learn? Well, the rod will drive it far from him or her. Proverbs 23, 13, 14. I could multiply these. There's this all through the Bible. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Or it's a little victim. He's not a victim. He's not going to kill him. Done the right way, right? Done thoughtfully, lovingly. We tried to be very loving with our children. We did this. We explained everything and said, this is told exactly what to expect. Here's why. And we prayed with them. And there, there's a way to do it. And there's a, an abusive way to do it. We're not advocating for that at all. If that's happening, we need to know about that. That's not, that is sinful and wrong. That's not what I'm saying. Biblical discipline. Is, is, is from God, I believe. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol, which means the grave. You will save him from death and point him to God. Show him that living that way in this world is not the way to live. And in this world, if you continue in this way, in a godless way, remember the, the, the writer of Proverbs is, is contrasting the way of the fool, the way of the wise, the way of the fool is to say, well, I'm a victim, and hey, this is, this is uh, not the God I would serve, and so we're not going to do that. Well, you may not save his soul from the grave. 
Now, that's no guarantee if you discipline your children they're going to be Christians. Of course not. These are principles, right, that are generally true. It's just how life works best in a fallen world. That's what Proverbs is, I think, in light of the cross. This, is, this discipline is God's gymnasium. I mean, think about when you work out, and you're going to laugh, and I'm, it's me talking about working out here. I need to be doing this. But when you're working out, back when I worked out, you know, so many <coughs> years ago, um, I would be really sore when I worked out. Now I'd not be able to get out of bed for about a month. I'd pull the hammies and all that. But it, 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 it hurt. Why? Because my muscles were being torn down to be built up. And that's the picture here. God is tearing you down through suffering and affliction, weaning you from love of this world to build you back up, right? You're all going to go to the gym this week and join the gym, right? Do what I did. Join the gym and never go. comes out of my account every month. I don't know what I'm thinking. <laughs> I need to cancel my debit card. That's what I th- need to do. <laughs> but it tears down your That's what God's doing. He's, he's weaning you from love of this world and calls you to look to him, to keep your eyes focused on him. My father disciplined me. He had my undivided attention. I can assure you, that day when I cut up in a revival meeting and every other day, and there was quite a bit of it because me and my brothers, we were three boys living in the country, and we were three boys living in the country. <laughs> lots of broken windows and lots of things that we won't talk about. And so there's a lot of discipline. Not excessive, but it was right. And it tore me down, and it hurt, but it built me up, I think. I hope, and that's what God's doing. He's taking you to his gymnasium, so it's not out behind the woodshed. That sounds a picture. Maybe it's kind of some nasty. So he's, he's building you up. All affliction, all suffering is building you up. It's tearing those muscles down, winning you from love in this world, building in that spiritual grittiness that he wants you to have so you will persevere in the faith. He asks here, for what son is there whom the father does not discipline? In verse 7, so you're not a son if he's not disciplining you. It shows you're in fact a son. That's what, he, what he's saying here. Verse 8, if you're left without discipline, which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, to summarize this, no discipline, no sonship. No discipline, no sonship. So I never suffer, man. My, I'm just... You know, my uh, life is all bluebirds and sunshine and uh, birds singing, and uh, it's all that. You know, it's, a, you know, it's a, a wonderful world, whatever. I mean, it's Disney World every day as a Christian. Then you got to wonder. That's what makes the prosperity gospel such terrible and awful, damnable heresy. So you say, well, you're really a Christian if you're healthy and wealthy and wise. God wants that for you. The Bible never promises that. I would argue the, other, the opposite is true. If you're not suffering on some level, God's not put you through in his gymnasium to build you up, tear you down and build you up and strengthen you, then are you a son or a daughter at all? To quote a good old 70s song, he never promised us a rose garden. I had sinuses this week. I don't want to talk about roses. <laughs> he never promised us a rose garden, did he? Not in the word. You're left without discipline in which all have participated. I mean, you're speaking of earthly fathers. Of course, it's lesser to greater here, right? There's sinful earthly fathers, a perfect father. They disciplined you and sometimes misdisciplined you. I understand, but the, the father, heavenly father, how much greater will his discipline be, right? How much more effective will it be for a greater purpose? But we often misinterpret suffering as God's rejection of us. We think, well... He must hate me because I'm going through things. Because health and wealth, that's true Christianity. Things will be going good, you know. And I think this way sometimes. I wonder, 
I wonder if I had a flat today because I did this thing back when I was a teenager or because I was mean to my wife today or because, you know, I, I don't know, I ate too much or I did this really stupid thing and I was 25 years old. I've done the same thing. I've wondered, is God paying me back? That's not how this works. That's, that's misinterpreting our suffering, isn't it? That, that's not, but we think that way. Intuitively, we try to draw one-to-one correlation between a sin and punishment. Because when we punish our children, it's always for, you know, breaking the window out of the, you know, the SUV or something. <laughs> Someone told me that happened one time. Or things related, things like that. We, we have a one, we say, you did this, and so you get this. It's not that way with God. That's not what's going on. That's to misinterpret, Right? This one feels painful at the time, but it's God's love for you. Church discipline is for that very same purpose. People say today, church discipline, you do church discipline down at Christ's fellowship. That's really mean and nasty. You would actually kick somebody out? Well, no. I mean, that would be the last. We, we, we've, church discipline's happened here, and we've seen God do great things through it, right? Because God is much more concerned about his holiness and our holiness than our happiness or our comfort. Yeah, it's loving done right. I know that's been misused too, like this one by fathers has. It's designed for our good. It's designed to spot, show his holiness, but for our good, for our holiness, right? To bring us into conformity to his son. So what should be our posture toward God's discipline and affliction? Psalm 90, 15. We can't do better than this. Moses' prayer. He says this, and you've got to wonder, is Moses a nut? Is he some kind of sadist? He says, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us? Really? And for as many years as we have seen evil, of course, evil here doesn't mean moral evil, but affliction or trouble or adversity. That's what the Hebrew word literally means. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. That's the Bible's teaching on affliction. That's why we need the Bible, right, to correct our misinterpretation. Make us glad. And we're not sadists here at Christ Fellowship Church. And neither is the Bible. He says, make us glad because it's making us like you. If this world is all there is, then life is just a sick joke, I think. This world is not all that great. I know we have good toys and good things, but it's not, is it? I think if we have trouble as Christians in America, it will actually be good for us. You're saying, what? I think it will be good for us because it will really... It'll make us gritty. It'll expose, it will expose the, the false professors from the true. But our, our, our posture toward discipline, toward our attitude toward discipline should be Moses is here. Because Moses is clear here in Psalm 90, 15. It is God who afflicts us, not the devil or some secondary cause. He may use the devil, as in the case of Job and others like it. But when God afflicts, he's not done with us. He doesn't leave us in affliction. He doesn't waste it. He designs it to produce fruit in us, like thankfulness and humility. It should lead us to repentance and ultimately to joy, not to bitterness or resentment. We're going to deal with that next week. Resentment toward God or those whom we, he might be using as instruments of discipline in our lives. He's using all these things, even, even the bad fathers. Somehow God's going to use that. Now, is it good and do we fail to punish that on a temporal level when there's abuse? Of course not. We said it here. I say it here as I've said it before. If abuse is going on in your home, tell us because that abuser is going to be arrested probably if, that's the, if it's a crime. That's not what I'm saying, so don't mishear me here. 
If you're watching out there especially, no, that is ungodly. That's not what we're advocating here, but godly discipline. Our posture should be thankfulness because of what he's doing in us. He's, he's disabusing us of resentment. Remember, when God, affliction is for discipline from God's hand, he is merely treating you as a son. Finally, in verses 10 and 11, God disciplines you to make you holy. And that's the end game. That's the end game today in our church here. That's the end game every day in your life is to make you holy, even as he is holy. And we're going to spend a lot of time on this next week, so come back next week because we're going to learn that holiness. No one will see the Lord. It's a radical call to holiness he's given to you as a Christian. We're to be separate from the world, to look different. I don't mean weird. There's a lot of weird Christians out there, right? And some of you may be weird. Don't be weird. That's not what I'm saying, but different. A different level of joy, different affections, different, just different in every way. The church should be different than the world. Verse 10b, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may, here's the purpose, share in his holiness. Verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later he yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So if you will be trained by God's discipline, instead of grumbling against it, it will bear an abundant harvest of righteousness in you for his glory. That's what he's saying. And of course, you've got to have the Bible to rightly interpret it, right? God is holy, and the point of the Christian life is he is making you and I like him. I mean, Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. For this momentary, and Paul had gone through the worst suffering this side of Jesus, by the way. And he says, this momentary light affliction, he calls it momentary light affliction. He'd beaten and starved and all kinds of terrible things. This momentary light affliction is producing in us, God's people, a weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Why? Because we look not to the things we see, not to the things that are seen, for those things are temporary. They're passing away. The Greek word literally means they're, they're passing away. They're, they're, it's like a fog. They're passing away. What you see is not as real as what you don't see. Because the things we see are temporal. The things we don't see, we do not see, they are eternal. What he's doing in 10,000 ways daily in your life through it, yes, affliction and discipline, is making you like Jesus, and it's for your good and for his glory. And it's momentary because there's, this life is momentary. And it's light affliction because Jesus paid it all. It doesn't compare to what Jesus bore at Calvary. It's training. It's training. It's painful for the moment. The goal is to be made holy and righteous, and that it will grow up in us. All the more as every day we walk with him, we'll be sanctified progressively throughout our lives. Never perfect in this life, of course. But we're putting sin to death and be made sanctified more and more and more as we wait for the day of Jesus to come. In God's gymnasium, the race set before us, there are five kinds of discipline in the Bible. We'll run through these real quickly. One, there's vindicative discipline, different kinds of discipline. This is important to interpret what you're going through. Vindicative discipline vindicates people. Job suffered to vindicate his faith. You may be suffering so God can show the, the genuineness of your faith, to show that you're not going to quit when life hits the fan. You're going to keep trusting. At least in my mind, I've been through this, and you probably have too. Vindicative discipline. He's vindicating your faith, showing you, even you, showing you that he's working in me. Have you ever been through something? It was awful, but you got through it, and you're still trusting God. You were closer to God, more intimate with God. You loved the Bible more, hated sin more, and you realized, man, God did it. And you trusted God more. It vindicated your own faith. You said, I'm a Christian after all. 
I've had people tell me that, and sometimes I'll think that I am a Christian because I could never have made it through that terrible circumstance on my own. Never, ever, ever. He vindicates your faith through suffering. Secondly, instructive discipline. Positive instruction to bring us to maturity. He, John 17, 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, it says, Sanctify them in truth. Christ prayed, for your word is truth. It's to help us to apply the scriptures more. We suffer, we run to the Bible, we take his word in, we take his, the doctrine and theology that we love in, and we apply it to our lives. Because unapplied theology is useless, right? No matter how intellectually satisfying it is. It can't stop here, it has to make it here. Thirdly, corrective discipline. This is discipline that comes when a child is being directly disobedient. You're very familiar with this. You know I am, at least in my own experience with my parents. Thankfully so. This discipline is designed to restore us to fellowship with our Father. The spanking I got for cutting up revival meeting age 10, that was, that was uh, corrective. It corrected me. I did not cut up in church anymore. And I'm not taking kindly to my children when they cut up in church. Probably because I remember that, that, that day, right? <laughs> it corrects our understanding, our interpretation of life. It corrects us. keeps us from going maybe off some theological or moral deep end. God loves us. And his love for us, he, he does this. He does the same. I mean, you say, well, I got caught looking at pornography, and boy, it caused a lot of problems. To which I say, God could have let you go. He loved you enough to cause you to get caught. He loved you so much you got caught, and now you're coming back to him, right? You've repented, and you're putting that sin to death, and you're coming back to him. That's his love. You got caught, it's his love for you. If he'd let you go your own way, then maybe you're not a son after all. You see how this works? Maybe you've been cheating in school, and you get caught by your teachers, and you get expelled, but you go back, and you're a good student. You see how that works? If you'd gone on cheating, you'd have cheated. Me, I'd wound up in prison. Who knows? I'd wound up dead in hell. Who knows what would have happened? You see how this works? And see, this is how God puts death, arrogance, and pride, and self-love, and lust, and 10,000 other sinful proclivities in, uh, through this discipline. This is what he's doing in our hearts, correcting us, correcting our interpretation, Think about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. Anyone who participates in the Lord's Supper, what happens? Well, they're disciplined, right? In an unworthy fashion. Anyone who participates in an unworthy fashion, unworthy manner. They eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Well, we fence the table here and say, hey, if you're an open, unrepentant sin, let's let this pass by till you repent. Of course, church discipline fits here as well. Instruct corrective. Again, we've got to be cautious here not to make a one-to-one correlation between our some sin and our relationship to God's discipline. Fourthly, formative discipline. John uh, 15, 1 to 3, God points out, He is the vine where the branches, that He prunes every vine connected to the tree to make it more healthy. If you've gardened, you know this. You have to cut the weeds, you have to prune the vines, you prune your trees, and they get more healthy. That's what He's doing to you, part of His discipline. Pruning you, cutting away sin, allowing you to lay aside this sin, this entanglement that will keep you from running the race, that will take you down, that will tackle you, that will keep you from persevering all the way to the end with Him. He's forming the image of his son in you. Romans 3, 4, or 5, 3, and 4, Paul says, A believer may rejoice in the midst of suffering because suffering produces perseverance, character, and hope. Discipline does those things, right? Finally, preventive discipline prevents us from falling into sin. A good example of this is Paul's thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. He prayed three times, Remove this thorn from my side. Take it out. And God wouldn't which tells me we can't claim our healing, right? 
kind of flies in the face of that teaching. But, but Paul said, it was for my good to keep me humble, to keep me from being arrogant. Can you, you imagine being like the Michael Jordan of spirituality? I mean, that was, you know, the Apostle Paul or the, uh, whoever, the, the, whoever the great athletes are today. I'm still living in the past, right? <laughs> you imagine what that would have done? Paul had this vision. He was caught up to, the, to heaven, the third heaven, caught up and probably saw Jesus. We don't know, saw all these things. And, but to keep him from being prideful about it, God gave a thorn in his flesh to keep him humble. I mean, he was already an apostle. Again, he was a, a theological and spiritual superstar. I mean, he was the, uh, the Billy Graham of his day. And even greater because he was an apostle. But God kept him from being arrogant and prideful. He called it a messenger from Satan. God uses secondary causes to achieve his purposes. He did it in tempting Job. He did it here in this messenger of Satan afflicting Paul. Keeping him from being prideful and arrogant and keeping him from trying to get too many Twitter followers and Facebook friends and all this stuff, you know, and all puffed up because, look at this, I'm trending. <laughs> Paul didn't say I'm trending because of the thorn in his flesh. We need that, don't we? God disciplines us for all these reasons, but here's the good news, and we land right here. If, for some reason, you find this discouraging rather than encouraging, here it is. Jesus paid it all. Jesus bore the discipline you and I deserve, right? God is disciplining us as sons because we're sons. But we're sons because he bore the punishment your sins and my sins deserve. That's why he says, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. And when we consider Jesus like Moses, we can be thankful for as many days as God has afflicted us. Even though it's hard. Even though it's difficult. At the end of the day, we can, you can lose that loved one. We can lose that child. You can lose that parent or that spouse, or you can get that cancer diagnosis. And through tears, and through bitter, bitter tears, you can say, The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because that's how Job did. Lost his whole family. And yet, because he worshiped God, not in spite of his suffering, but out of his suffering, he saw it for what it was. He interpreted it rightly. He was able to look. And say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Are you able to do that? Do you see it as good? Do you understand that's what it takes to be conformed to the image of Christ? Because it's what it takes for the deadly diseases of pride and envy and slander and gossip and selfish ambition and arrogance and lust and anger and self-love and 10,000 other sins we put to death in us. It's what it takes for God to remake you in the image of his son. What kind of love is that? But ultimately, his son paid it all. You're not paying for your sins. He's already done it. So keep on looking to him. I love what A.W. Tozer said. And this is true of ministers, he's speaking, but this is true of all Christians. He said, it is doubtful whether God can use a man greatly before he first bruises him deeply. I think that's the picture. Scripture throughout gives us, and right here in this text, may God give us a heart and a mind to interpret it and apply it correctly and to suffer and be disciplined and made like his son for his glory. Let's pray. Father, there's so much in here, and I know we've been a long time at this, but God, give us patience to endure and to see the good things here and give us grace in order to correct our interpretation of things according to your word. Help us to understand that when you discipline us, it is because you love us. Just like my father used to say, this hurts me more than it does you. And I didn't believe him, but Lord, I know what he meant. 
Because, Lord, we know that you discipline us because you love us. That was another way of saying that, Lord. But we know it's true because your word tells us it's true. So give us grace to suffer well, to be formed in the image of Christ, and not take on a victim mentality, but be by your grace and for your glory, spiritually gritty, to persevere all the way to the end. In Jesus Christ our Lord, in his name we pray. Amen.